What is up, Asymmetry? Man, have we missed you all. It has been murder to try and produce a podcast during the corona pandemic, but man, what an awesome opportunity as well to be able to run down one one of the more inspirational people that I, I personally have contact in my life. I don't really know how to introduce Brad Clopefill. Um, you could call him an architect, the the mind behind some of the more brilliant structures that exist throughout North America. Um, Allied Works Architecture based out of New York and Portland, Oregon, and just um, just a really inspirational creative mind that's had a massive influence on me and been a major mentor for me. And I, I look forward to future projects with Brad, but he's been a, a really encouraging and incredibly, I think, uh, constructive in his support and mentorship of me and, and my career at Mirai. And it was really rewarding to get to sit down and just listen to Brad talk because everything that he says has content and context to it. I think you'll enjoy this a lot beyond just architecture, just the creative mind of a truly brilliant uh, creative person who has chosen a multitude of medias to express himself, but architecture seems to be his primary point of communication. Enjoy. Likewise, I was really excited that you were interested because I've, you know, it's not everybody's interested in podcasting. Yeah. But usually once we, once we get into it, uh, hey, just talking talking about ideas. Talking that's about all, ideas. That's all I care about. Yeah. Especially now. Why why especially now? Just it's like in a, everything in my life is in a maintenance mode. You know, just trying to kind of take care of stuff with the transition and hold on and take care of what we have, take care of the people we have. Mm-hmm. Take care of the work. You know, there's not a lot of dreaming going on. Oh, that's in weird. Because last time, last time you were here, it seemed like you were thinking very seriously about some really high level shit. I was. That's actually very good. I wrote. I wrote that thing. I don't know if I sent you that piece. I wrote. Did no. I say that? I still didn't do that. Yeah, I wrote a piece about the loss of civic culture and civic life. And no, I was. I was all introspective. Yeah, that was the first. You know, four to six weeks, and then after that, I hit the wall. Just hit the wall. <laughs> Downhill from there. Right now, I'm on. I'm on. I'm on. My way to a four-day vision quest out on the South Fork of the John Day, going out there tomorrow by myself for four days. No kidding. Just to what? Solitude? Solitude and just try to get myself thinking about the future rather than reacting, reacting mm. to the present, you know? Trying to get a step ahead? Just not even get a step ahead. Just, I mean, my whole career and my whole life thus is based on thinking, you know, imagining a future, a future mm-hmm. place, a future project, right? I mean, mm-hmm. architects project out four to six years, right? My first charcoal mark gets built in six years. Yeah. It's nuts, right? Mm-hmm. So that whole kind of living in this kind of future projection just isn't happening, you know? And are you, and you feel lost without that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Untethered. Completely yeah. untethered. That's what the four, the first six weeks between kind of adjusting to the new thing and then kind of being intrigued about the time to introspect a little bit in the in the different context that we're living in. But now with still no discernible future mm. that we can recognize, mm-hmm. it's starting to really wear on me. Mm. 
Yeah. It's, you know, since you live in 2,000 to 5,000 year cycles, it's different with you. <laughs> 2,000 to 5,000. Yeah. No, I, I, it, I've, been, I've been slow. I've been very slow to uh, actually think about it, in all honesty. Well, again, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's also why so many people gardened like myself, I spent, in fact, I also spent the first month gardening and building, you know, raised beds and mm-hmm. going hard to my bread baking and doing all those things which just kept you in the present. Yeah. Right. Bread baking. I had no idea you baked bread. I've baked, baked bread. I bought my first bread book in 1978. No kidding. Yeah. I don't know. I found it in a used bookstore. Like not. curiosity sparked this or th- is this your mother used to bake uh, bread? No. What's the- no, 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 no history at all. Although I know my grandfather, my grandmother used to bake bread in Kansas for 10 kids. But um, no, I just, I saw the book in a used bookstore in Eugene, Oregon, Bernard Clayton's Complete Book of Bread. Hmm. And I make 20 loaves of bread at Christmas and give them away. And This is your thing. It, kind, a- kind a of. A thing. It's a, a thing to take me away. Yeah. It's, you know, lose myself. And I, I can, under, I mean, that's why so many people have been doing it. It's such a, you have to just stay present, you know, with the dough and the cycles and the rising. And yeah. Keeps you from. But, but where you're at, you're missing that, you're missing that distant thought. Yes. And, and that, do you think that, does that give you, cause, you're doing something in baking bread and obviously there's a gradient here, right? Like a, a, a balance of things being present and also being free to just more or less roam mentally. Right. And you're missing the roaming because we're all present, just waiting to figure out what the hell is going to happen well, with I everything. Also, I also think the freedom to roam for most people, and I'm sure not a lot of artists and writers maybe, but most people need some kind of secure structure to allow them to roam. Mm-hmm. You know, the roaming part is a luxury. Right. In a way, right? I mean, you're either so desperate that you have nothing and nothing else to lose, yeah. right? Or you have a, a context where you're kind of taken care of and you are and you can untether yourself mm-hmm. or free yourself from that. And I guess that's been my circumstance more or less. Mm. Is there's a sort of superstructure. Also, architecture... You know, it's it's not like being a writer or a painter or a sculptor. You, your creativity is fed by context, right? People, institutions, cities, landscape. You know, weather, light. Mm-hmm. It's fed by things that are tangible, right? Rather than sitting alone in a room and just coming up with something. Yeah, right. right. It's it's responsive, I guess. <clears throat> and without that context of response, it, it's like, I guess, architecture, it gets, uh, architectural thoughts get echoed back to you by those things, by people, institutions, cities, and without the, that context mm-hmm. or, or that structure, it's like they just go, you know, where, where do they go, you know? There's nothing to bounce them back. There's right. no, there's no, yeah, that it's, makes sense. And, and again, thus you're a painter or a writer, you know, and I'm not, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not, it's a different art. It's a different discipline. So without that echo, without those surfaces, yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. So would you consider architecture also dictated by constraints and boundaries or do you not look at it like that? 
Because you've got building codes, you've got budgets, you've got space limitations, you have uh, other minds that are asking you to design something. Right. It's funny. I don't consider those primary restraints. You know, that's... To me, that's no different than, you know, uh, a sculptural medium has restraints, mm-hmm. you know, or a kind of paint or a kind of video has its own technical restraints. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's just the nature of the beast. And they're usually easy to solve. It's part of the medium. Then. Yeah, it's part of the medium. Gotcha. All those things. Okay. Cost, et cetera, et cetera. Function is easy. So last time you were here, you were, you were saying, I really would like to build a, a stadium from scratch uh mm-hmm. and i would really like to build a spiritual space those were the two things that you had kind of communicated right. last time you were here yeah those are different <laughs> those are two very different things <laughs> like 180 degree <laughs> opposite well i don't I, it uh, depends yes, right? right because there's a lot there. of cross-reference to sports as a religion now well i, I, I think for that right those the support that some wow. people have for this diehard almost allegiance to community. Right? Sure. Yeah, you're you're identifying with a community. It's it's really interesting. These the uh, a lot of religious communities and congregations have been the ones advocating for a return, you know, a release from the pandemic restrictions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because people in that community identify so much with their group, you know, and yeah. their ability to come together. Yeah. Um, that it's hard for them. I think it's also a kind of loss of identity, interesting loss of, a loss of spiritual identity, and it's this. I think it's we seek it as as humans. I mean, the the, the only thing, you know, we've replaced it with a lot. We've resp- a lot of us have replaced spirituality or formal spiritual practice with other things. Sports is a really common one because uh-huh. you still get community. You get the sense of togetherness. You're serving something bigger than yourself. Mm. This idea of the team, you know, and all of the other goals and associations. I mean, the parallels are really kind of amazing. The thing you're missing, I mean, in the ideal sense, is the ethical introspection, Mm -hmm. right? So we throw out formal religion and we throw out ethical introspection and a lot of other things of great value to our culture. And for me, finding a space that, people want to be in that inspires introspection inspires a different way of thinking about yourself and your place in the world Mm -hmm. architecture can do that and that's why i want to i want to bring the voice of architecture i want to assert it in that conversation and assert the value of those issues and ideals that are discussed and considered in a religious space in a Hmm. spiritual space where do you do it otherwise? We do, we do it in the landscape. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, 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 we talked about that contextually in terms of multiple aspects of the landscape environment. Do you think that your motivation to do these uh, at, at sort of uh, first glance, completely opposing <clears throat> structures and architectural spaces, do you actually think there's a closer connection mm-hmm. to those two things than maybe a, a, an initial superficial thought uh Mm -hmm. you think there's more to it that i mean there's a there's a fundamental thing fundamental presence of architecture no matter what the building typology is that it can engender awe in people Mm -hmm. and i associate with i associate awe with wonder when you're when you're awestruck 
when you're which which really causes you to pause in your day to day operations, mm-hmm. whether it's in a landscape, which we've all felt in cities sometimes and buildings sometimes. Once you pause in that sense of awe, the wonder kicks in and you start to think and see things and observe. It changes your perspective. So it doesn't matter what the building type is, <clears throat> excuse me, in that in that regard. Um, it can do it all. I mean, my intrigue with, with uh, soccer stadiums is, one, I love soccer, passionate mm-hmm. about soccer. And then structure, just it's an exploration in pure structure. Yeah. And I love the design of structure. It's probably my primary interest in some ways in architecture or it's the primary act of architecture Mm. it's sort of the fundamental act it's so to think about structure as a pure entity is a it's a fascinating problem and that's stadiums so this kind of we were talking earlier and and we just had to shut it down because it was like no i want i want i want to know about this um (laughs) when when you said listen the the way that your architecture potentially has been labeled is brutalist, whether you oh. felt the, whether you felt uh-huh. particular pieces were brutalist or not. Right. And Wyden Kennedy was such a significant space that I've yeah. heard brutalism. Uh-huh. I've heard it labeled as that. And so it was interesting to hear you say, you know, as we were talking about different mediums and different work, how it sucks when you get labeled with that, <laughs> you know? And then I just wanted to know, is Wyden Kennedy brutalist architecture? Yeah. I think it gets associated with brutalism because it's concrete. And so that's an easy, easy association. And it's, you know, naturally exposed concrete and naturally exposed materials. So there's, I mean, brutalism in its day had a kind of ethic and ideal about that. Mine is obviously related because... I have a similar attitude about the materials themselves and how you express them and explore them. So it's definitely related. Mm. In terms of not trying to make the material something that it's not? Yes. Just letting it be honest and authentic? Yes, exactly, and not covering it up. Uh huh. I mean, we endeavor, no matter what material we use, steel in the, in the, in the Timbers and Thorns Stadium, um, to not cover it up mm-hmm. and to let it express itself. Yeah. So that's definitely that, that that is definitely an extension of that legacy of brutalism. I mean, it, it's interesting when you read. You know, if you have the luxury of having great history teachers like I did at Columbia, you start to realize there's been basically one conversation in architecture. It's not different schools and camps. It's different fissures and eddies and currents and streams. Mm-hmm. But it's a you know it kind of splits off with a certain school and teacher, and it kind of comes back and. It's one conversation. Interesting. Basically one conversation. And they all affect the others. Even if you're adamantly opposed to yeah. <laughs> what they are, yeah. you, you, you respond in some way for or against. Or... Is, there, is there any architectural style or approach hmm. inside of this conversation that you find absolutely repulsive? Um, our architecture often has a fundamental... As a, as a profession, it can be fundamentally insecure. And so... What, do, what does that mean? Uh, you know, where, where pure art in its various forms, pure literature in its various forms, uh, often gets attributed with groundbreaking ideas. And architecture wants to participate so badly mm. that often, it, uh, often architects try a little too hard. 
yeah to to quote make something new mm. um and then of course anytime you dig deeper into any art art any evolution or innovation in art when you scratch under the surface you see hits historical context instantly and realize that it wasn't a groundbreaking idea at all you know it got it got restated in, in a different historical context in a different way and involved some individual genius i suppose to concentrate it but mm. but architecture seems to be desperately trying hard especially lately <laughs> especially in the last few years really mm-hmm. do you look at it and kind of feel like oh that's a shame like, like what what emotion does that elicit in you well, I mean, uh, a lot of times, well, I shouldn't say a lot of times, but often, and what I hope for, is I see something new and interesting. You know, I, I want it just as much as anybody else. Wait, so when they're trying, you're like... You want to like it. try. Way to try. Way to go well, out on I, a lit. I wish I was that magnanimous. Okay. No, I'm definitely not that. <laughs> no, but you, you want to, you know, you, you hear a new piece, you get to see it, it's by someone you respect, and you're really hopeful, right? Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it's amazing and you learn something and, you know, but many times you see buildings where people try to do something and fail. And I would say that's most often the case. What's an architectural uh, fail? Uh, well, just before I do that, okay, you, it makes me sad because I, I know what it takes to raise, you know, $120 million, what it means to communities. You know, how often that'll happen again, you know, in 20 years, 30 years, you know, the kind of effort on the construction workers part, mm-hmm. you know, two years to build these buildings out of somebody's life and to have it really kind of just be capricious and superficial is sad mm. more than anything else, you know. Interesting. <laughs> huh. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. So what you're telling me is that your problem with it comes down to a feeling of sorrow for the people that didn't know any better, but on their backs, this atrocity was built. I uh, know your atrocity is your words. I'm uh, your uh, word. I always say, no, it's, it's, it's well, more... we haven't even focused on a subject, yeah. a piece of work. Yeah. We're staying very okay. right. out, outside of <laughs> identifying that. particulars. Cause I think it's the, I, I think that. it's, when I look at your architecture, there is a maturity to it from the limited amount that I know about architecture. And it seems to me your approach is potentially having gone through a phase where you were like, yeah, I want to build this zip zorp wing zang zip doodle, <laughs> right? Like I have to believe at some point there you were in the race of no, creating no. new ideas or you've Different. always existed outside of this. No, and it, it's, I'm not saying I don't pursue new ideas either. No, it's just a different intent. It's it's when presented with an opportunity or a problem, like you talked about earlier, it's taking the time to ask what the architecture can contribute. You know, what what can architecture say about this city, institution, place, mm. activity? What can it say that only architecture can say? Mm. You know, the painting can't say, film can't say. Um, yeah, and, and then in this in your current uh, cultural context, what can you add to the conversation? And just taking the time to think about that and explore that takes it's it's hard, you know. And it's it's a different intent than I want to make a landmark or I want to make, you know, a 
a statement. Mm-hmm. It's not about the architect. Mm-hmm. You're trying to remove yourself from the work. Right, which of course you can't, but... Yeah. yeah. So, so in this current time and the things that you've experienced... Has that changed what you thought about architecture? Changed the way you you think about architecture? Um, because now you're talking about having a limitation placed on being able to be thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. You're experiencing a limitation that to this point in your career has not existed. This seems right. to me like a very pivotal <laughs> point, monumental <laughs> potential <laughs> point in your career. Let's let's hope <clears throat> that'd be nice. Let's hope. <laughs> No, I, I, and I, I don't know if it's, I think it's coincident with, you know, having Allied Works for 25 years, being my age. There's a lot of things coming together in this, along with the pandemic and, and, and what it means. And the, for me, the pandemic, you know, certainly primarily a kind of horror to the families who have lost people and the, and all of the sort of residual fallout from, from the illness, you know, is, is is profound. But I think other than that, the pandemic, more than anything, is a timeout for everyone. And that's an interesting thing, a global timeout. Mm. Right? Somebody called timeout, right? Yeah. Right? A virus, not even a living organism as far as, as far as I've understood, has called a global timeout, which is profound. And now what happens with that timeout? You know, there's everyone's writing about it, but it'll be interesting because it, it, it will. I mean, whenever there's a pause, there's a glitch, there's a hiccup, there's a anything. You know, hmm. it doesn't just get back in the same track. I don't think, but we'll see. That'd be sad, actually. I was gonna say, would you be happy if it got back Mm-mm. in the same track? Mm-mm. Or were you Mm-mm. really? Were you prior to all of this? Were you really happy with the direction that you were headed and where you were at? Oh yeah, I was very very happy. You were very happy, but but you know, globally, it's it's interesting. I've never I haven't thought about this. Everyone's assigning a goal to this timeout. You know, people deeply concerned about climate are assigning though. You know, pollution values and you know down and. People are driving as much, and oil prices have gone. You know, everything. Everyone has their own agenda that they're assigning to the to the timeout of the pandemic, and hoping then for a re-reference, right? And I don't know. I don't know if we do that as humans. I I don't know if we don't just go in a straight line, and you know, get knocked down and dust off and keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. wish there was a re-reference. Yeah. All of us hope with our own agendas. You have yours, I have mine, whatever it might be. But I don't know. I don't know if there'll be a re-reference. I really don't. Yeah, I don't know that this is a... I don't know that this is the kind of scenario that creates a redirection in the same way that something that alters the true state of existence like the internet. Yeah. Right. Like you're you're talking about uh, social media, uh, or mm-hmm. prior to that, you know, you could be talking about devastating natural disasters, right? Stuff like that. Th- right. th- this is changing the way that people feel, think, and exist in the world that we know of. I don't mm-hmm. know that this, if mm-hmm. for a time, absolutely, w- will it potentially become a, a perpetual problem? I don't know. I sure hope mm-hmm. not. That would mm-hmm. suck, and that would then, in a prolonged 
in a prolonged right. pandemic, I could see that having some major altering effects. But we've learned how to live with the flu. We learned, I mean, people lived with polio, tuberculosis. Yeah, sure. People just live with them. Yeah. And I think we're in the same boat. You know, we, we had a wonderful, luxurious, I mean, when sort of polio, when did Jonas Saw come up with the vaccine? I don't know. It was the middle of the 20th century, something like that. Okay. So from then to now, at least in the West, we've been pretty fortunate. So, you know, 70-year run. Yeah. Whatever it's been. Yeah. And now we're kind of back to normal. Because hmm. you look at all of history before that, mm-hmm. there was always two or three of these forces in the world that at any moment can break out and... I would hate, and I don't in any way intend, you know, in asking this question to state that it, you know, obviously people have died and it has been a big deal. Do you think because there's been, I mean, you talk about World War One, World War Two, uh, and that kind of, there were also some pandemic issues inside of those years, the Great oh Depression, gosh. economic yeah. issues galore, mm-hmm. that generation that lived through World War One, World War Two, and the Great Depression. You're talking about some shit right there. Exactly. I mean, that's yeah. like... Yeah, that's just the world crapping on you right. and getting up and continuing to persevere right. and move forward. And then we've had, we really have had the luxury to think a lot in, 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 without that kind of pressure to yeah. think a lot more about the individual as opposed to the community <clears throat> and value of the self mm-hmm. as opposed to the greater good of the whole. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and I wonder inside of this if you know because this does not. I don't think. I don't know how it compares because obviously I didn't live in World War One, World War Two, and mm-hmm. and the Great Depression. It doesn't seem like it's comparable yet at this point Mm-mm. to that kind of devastation. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean that one, the one effect which you can see, and again I wrote about it in the Medium piece a little bit. But the one effect is, I think we're all realizing how badly we need each other. Mm-hmm. You yep. know? But this is weird to me. So, so like I, I hear that and I'm like, okay, cool. Totally. Yet everybody is leaning more on technology and moving farther away from each other. And I don't know that that rebounds. Oh, I don't know I, that that rebounds. Oh, I, to- I totally disagree. Oof. I totally disagree. think so? No, I, in fact, I think it, it will create a, a, a tremendous rebound. Because well, the places that have reopened have been pretty, uh, pretty ruckus, apparently. You know, on like <laughs> Memorial Day across the country and reopened yeah. areas was no, seemed to be I, outrageous. We are, we are as a culture, as a no, as a species, we're desperate to be together. And what we've learned with the tools, the digital tools in the last couple of months, you know, those of us that have the luxury yeah. of being at home and, and access to the technology, but we've learned the tools. And we've learned that we can continue to do business with those tools. And it's amazing, mm. actually. I mean, everyone, you know, have, have they've adopted it. They're using it. I mean, we were using it somewhat before, too. Now everyone realizes, oh, my God, we could just do this forever. And, oh, my God, that's the last thing we want to do. If people, people don't want it. People want to be together. What did I, I – I was talking to – Who? I was talking to someone I have great respect for um, – and he was talking about the incidental meeting of someone in the hall and what nourishment he got from that. He used the word nourishment. And huh. I thought, fantastic. And this is not, you know, this man's not a poet. <laughs> you know, he's not an artist. You know, a very thoughtful man. But 
that sums it up. Mm. We, without being together, we lose nourishment. Hmm. And and again, my office, we've we've used, you know, go to and Zoom forever with two two offices on two coasts. So we're facile with it. We people know how to use it. We use it kind of effortlessly, and everybody dislikes it. Yeah. And I think that's what's nice. The mythology of now we don't need to be together is nothing more than that. Mm. Nothing more. I remember I remember when when personal computers first came to the fore and they were going to kill the library. There would be no more libraries because we can access all the information at home, right? So we don't need to come together. And yet, I remember 10 years ago, I went to the library at the University of Paris, the building Saint-Jean-Vieux by Le Brust, famous, famous library, 18th century library. And I went in there, and it was full of people. Hmm. And they were all working on their laptops. They could be working at home on their laptop. Yeah. But they chose to be in this beautiful space together with other people. And why do people go to Starbucks and cafe? Yeah, you know, why can't I get a seat in a cafe in Brooklyn? When all these freelance writers who could be working at home, you know, in their apartments are working together in a cafe and keeping me from having my cappuccino in the morning. Yeah. But, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't think I think that is um kind of media hype, looking for topics. Mm. You know, looking looking for something, but it's not it's not real. Really, I think if anything else, and it's funny, I read articles about businesses. I don't know if it was Bank of America. You know, we may never go back to the office. Well, that's only because they're ten years behind the times in technology. You know, advertising agencies, architects, designers—we've all been working like this in some fashion for a long time, yeah. and we realize its limitations. So now they're kind of late adopters, and they think it's going to save them money and. Leases. I was going to say, I, it seems to me like it's not necessarily <laughs> ethically based. It's more of a uh, bottom line cap- <laughs> capitalism based decision yeah. to not have brick and mortars, to not have employees coming to work, it's, to it's, not have right. cubicles and and facilities and all that. Fastest way to destroy any kind of co- corporate culture or work culture is to do that. Yeah. You know, turn each of your employees into an individual bubble Yeah, who then can apply for other jobs online while they're home. You know, I mean, just taking care of myself. There's no allegiance. There's yeah, yeah. no sense of togetherness. Hmm. I, I I think it's, I mean, Wyden and Kennedy came to us three years ago to do a master plan for the, for the space we designed, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago. And it was really about thinking about how to get people back in the building. You know, they'd let people go. I mean, they're already going all over, you know, filming and doing all the other work that they do, right? right? And then they let people go and work from home partly and have a kind of freedom, and the culture was unraveling. I mean, that was exactly the conversation. How do we get people back together to keep a culture intact? Again, you know, advertising agencies were some of the first people to kind of open the doors and break down the walls. And and is that a problem that as an architect you would expect to be asked about? Well, my relationship with Wayne and Kennedy is pretty special. So. Okay. But yes, yeah, that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of problem that's fascinating. Are they right. asking you to change the space to make it more conducive to yeah, people and, coming and, back? Yes, and to have a conversation about what do people want? What would bring people back together? Uh-huh. 
Yeah, it was. It's a fascinating. It's really fascinating. Like because like once the walls, you know, once you've sort of dropped the walls and let people go, what would bring people back together other than the desire to be together, mm -hmm. which I think is fundamental? What would bring people back together? And I think that's a really interesting conversation. Architecture can play a role in that, and help and help building that culture and conversation. I mean, if people hate where they work, yeah, they're not going to come back. That's the other part. If I was working for a bank in some of that office space, you can better believe I'll I'd be happier working at home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <cafe>. sure, yeah. <laughs> right. Small cubicle, yeah, fluorescent lights. Just, yeah, no thanks. Twenty seventh floor of a tower with hung ceilings and yeah, carpet, lots of carpet. I mean, where do you even begin to start to answer that question being asked of you? Because it's not like it's not like anybody's like, hey, Brad, why don't you come in here? We're going to talk about what brings people back together. So when you get approached <laughs> about a job, you know what to say. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like you're yeah. at you're at such an elite level of architecture where you are a mind that are answering those questions. But I'm curious, where do the answers to those questions come from for you as somebody that is being asked by a brilliant community of people like yeah, White and Kennedy? Yeah. Brad Clofill, tell us how we solve this problem. You start asking them questions. You try to find out the nature of the problem. I mean, a lot, a lot of times when people come to you with, a, with an architectural need, it is, their need is, is either not architectural, it's internal to how they conduct things, mm -hmm. right? And or the way they think architecture will help it is usually incorrect because they don't know architecture, Yeah. right? I mean, they're not supposed to, right? So they, they, they try to assign, you know, functional needs and, you know, a lot of different things because they're kind of desperate to figure out what's, what's going on, you mm -hmm. know? They've hit a limit of some sort or another, right? So really breaking it down and asking questions, mm. like what, what, you know, try to find out what their, what the real problem is, what their real needs are. What yeah. are they, what are they asking a building to do that only a building can do? Cause a lot of times they're asking a building to do things that it can't do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we really can't help you with that. Sure. Right. And try, trying to get to the core of all of that because people heap, you know, they heap, we all do that. I mean, we heap a lot of things on our significant others that really has nothing to do with our relationship, right? It's about our work, about our self-esteem, about sure. all these things, and we heap it on our relationship. Sure. And, and we, people do the same thing with buildings. Yeah, but wouldn't it be amazing if a building could answer all of that and solve all <laughs> yeah. that? You'd just be like, fuck yes, sign me up. Mm -hmm. Brad, let's build right. it. Let's but, build it. Yeah, but what I think when a, when a building is really powerful and present... And it kind of asserts its voice, you know, in the in the right context. It orders and organizes lots of other things around it, right? It has it has a way to clarify, you know. It's like that thing in a, in a, when you're struggling with ideas, and you just you grab onto one clear thought. It can organize the other thoughts around yeah. it, right? Yeah, it's just like that. If you can hit that one thing that the building can do in such a powerful and clear way, yeah, everything else suddenly becomes clear. I talk about buildings being lenses, that they're really lenses to the world. And, and if you focus the architecture right, you can see a lot of things you wouldn't see otherwise. It's really interesting. I talk about bonsai in that way, that it's just a doorway. And once you open yeah. it, you see a lot of other aspects of the world in a way that makes a lot more sense than it ever did before. 
How is that? Let's let's talk about that. Well, I mean, it, 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 so it, it, I guess for me, it's through Boneside that I became interested in architecture, that I came became interested in furniture design, that I became interested in generational approaches and changes to aesthetic, that I became interested in the impact of culture on the way people think and do things, that I became interested in the way aesthetics inside of that culture reflect cultural ideals you know, and, and, and it was and it was a moment in 2012. I worked on a Rocky Mountain Juniper in my workshop. I got on a plane and flew to Europe and did a demonstrate 2011, did a demonstration on stage in Belgium and then flew from Belgium to Japan to help my master prepare for the Kokfu. And I had uh, an experience, an authentic American experience, an authentic European experience, an authentic Japanese experience. And they were all very different. And that was the first time that I'd ever mm. thought, wow, Bonsai. Bonsai is powerful. This is really powerful because it's not just me impacting the tree. It's everything around me that's impacting me that's impacting the tree. I'm just a filtration unit, right? right? Like I take all this, the environment, the context, the language, the people, the food, the thought process, the pace of life. And all of a sudden they say, get on stage and make something. I'm dealing with a species of tree that's not necessarily native to me, but with all of that influence, I do something different than I would historically do if I were in a different context. Oh my God, I have so many questions associated with this. So one really simple one though, mm -hmm. to start with the most simple. So you go on stage as an act of performance art. That, that is an aspect of bonsai that I really enjoy and find value in. Yeah, demonstrations. Wow. Yeah, I love it. Wow. I love it because you're being asked to and i mean i have very fond memories of the demonstrations that i attended when i was trying to make sense of bonsai in in high school and college i mean it was it was like i was watching magic <sighs> you have this proficient person you have this radical piece of material that has no resemblance to anything organized or right. of intentional conceptual value right. it just has raw unpolished potential and watching somebody interpret that and create a shape out of that was just like this is number one this is what's possible wow th this is something i've never seen before that the technique the necessity to understand the nuances of the tree and then all of a sudden getting deeper into it and recognizing as a human being nobody is going to think and create and interpret what i'm going to think and create and interpret in this and all of a sudden bonsai becomes this dramatic reflection of the individual to a degree where i can look at or I like to think mm -hmm. and oftentimes challenge myself with looking at people's work and getting to know them better as a person and seeing the nuances of their mm -hmm. work and how that person I've become to know is reflected in that work. And it's freaking fascinating. Wow. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. And even watching my own work over 10 years or watching my master's work over the you know 35 plus year career that he's had and seeing his generational arc and his real sharp point of creativity when he was at his most innovative and seeing the softening and the maturation of age it's like okay well if you look at painting mm. you look at writing you look oh, at poetry yeah. you look at uh architecture and this mm -hmm. is where i was saying there had to be a point mm -hmm. in your career where you were mm -hmm. rambunctious or young or you mm -hmm. had that edge and now mm -hmm. you're, you're seeing things differently and none of them are better or worse mm -hmm. or right or wrong it's just the narrative arc of somebody as a mm -hmm. filter mm -hmm. to everything they experience this is this in my mind, mm -hmm. the body of work over a lifetime. Right. That's what I actually find to be the most inspiring. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. This I mean, is this is this is beautiful. This is beauty. This is like beauty yeah. on an understanding of the human experience. Right. I, I it's, it's so interesting. A few years ago, maybe five years ago, and I was giving a talk or something, and I realized, oh my God, we have a body of work. <laughs> 
you know, because the first 10, 15 years of, of your career, you just want to work. Mm. You're just trying to get work and get projects that are interesting that allow you to explore, you know, ideas and potentials and all those things, which is really hard. And finally, you look back, you stop and look over your shoulder and there's a body of work. And it's, oh, holy yeah. cow, look yeah. at what we made. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, right. No, it's very much like that. But it does give you a kind of base then. In the beginning, you have no base. Right. You're searching. And that's the exciting part. Is you know, it though? Oh, my God. It's so fun. But I love this. <sighs> I, I love this phase because, because you do have this base of ideas. You know, I'm, I'm not looking for my voice. I found my voice. I think there's still tremendous potential in the way I think about architecture and see the potential of architecture. Mm. But I kind of, yeah, you know your voice, right? You look out there in the garden here. Do you call it a garden? I do. Yeah, you look out here in the garden and there's your voice, right? Mm, see. Different because there's so much history. Well, no, I, I just think I'm only 10 years into, when you think about it, really having the technical capacity huh. and the awareness to explore. I do see a significant shift in 10 years. Why ten? It's only why only ten years. You've been doing this how long? Yeah, but so doing bonsai since I was twelve, collecting trees out of the mountains and and stumbling my way through just not killing them versus <laughs> very like intentionally, technically, and and trying to evolve my artistic mind to be able to be able to manage the medium and have the ability to utilize it in a way that I feel definitely does communicate what I'm attempting to communicate are two completely different things. Hmm. And so looking out there, I look at really having that skill set set up after having done bonsai since I was 12 till mm -hmm. I was 21 and going to Japan for six years and coming home at 28. And now this will be my 11th year when I turn mm. 39, mm. you know, um, but only I really only look at those 10 years. Obviously, the time prior to that influenced everything. Sure. Sure. But but uh, the, la the last 10 years is the only time or, or I think that was the beginning of having the vocabulary to communicate. Right. So once you can learn how to talk, then you start to develop your style of talking. Right. And so what are you trying to say then now? What am I trying to say yeah, now? What are you trying to say in after 10 years and, and this seven years of studying before that? Uh-huh. What is it you're trying to say in your work? I mean, a, I know that's a broad question. No, I don't think it is at all. I mean, I think about this a lot because I don't want there to be confusion around in my own mind. And, and in ideally, if I'm capable of communicating through my medium. I don't want there to be, I, obviously there's going to be interpretations of what I'm trying to communicate, but I don't want there to be a total cluelessness. And that means I have to have a concise knowledge of what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. I think uh, for me, <laughs> I think bonsai has the power to connect people and, and help them understand their place and their role in the stewardship of the natural environment that we've developed the tools to really alter to a dramatic impact and, mm. and effect, right? So there's a, a power in that. But I think the only way that you get to connect people to that, mm -hmm. um, not obligation, but responsibility that we have with the power that we've created over the evolution of tools and mechanics. And mm -hmm. we have the capacity to change nature forever, for the worse or for the better, okay? Mm -hmm. So when you start to look at that, the awe that you talk about creating in a religious space is an awe that exists around seeing something that is truly unfathomable in the natural world mm -hmm. when you talk about being in nature and being in awe. Okay, mm -hmm. This happens when you see the farthest degree of ancient. 
Mm-hmm. So when I think about bonsai, working with the oldest piece of material mm-hmm. and understanding what does it mean to look ancient? What is the aesthetic value? Mm-hmm. What is the aesthetic uh, merit around ancient? How do you convey that in a way that people have that same sense of awe mm-hmm. and relate to it in that way that mm-hmm. awakens them to their role in the natural environment through this microcosm of bonsai? And, and for me, that's pushing the degrees of asymmetry pushing the abnormalities of the influence of natural unplanned events, the environment, Mm -hmm. and really trying to leave behind sort of a trail for people to follow through Mm -hmm. my designs where they can see the evolution of that asymmetry and the remnants of what used to be but no longer is, at least Mm -hmm. alive, but is still very much insinuated in the design. Because once you see that and you say, holy shit, this thing is three feet tall, Mm -hmm. it looks like it's 800 years old, is it? Yeah, probably like four or 500 years old, but I'm glad it looks 800 years old. Try to digest that. That's right. that's five times the life that you're ever going to be able to live right mm-hmm. there in front of you. And the more beautiful thing is, is the aesthetic and understanding of ancient. As you visit all of these special places in the world and you yeah. see that awe over and over again, is it becomes more and more clear mm-hmm. when you create a piece that can have that kind of impression and impact. Mm-hmm. What What does it mean it's... When I when I see when I'm when I see the work and you know the first time I came out here and I was so struck, so struck by it, um, it, it it appears to me that you're you're intervening in the life of a piece. You take this piece off of a mountain somewhere mm. or wherever it's coming from, right? Yep. And it's it's had a history, and you're taking it and you're recontextualizing it. You know, now it's not in nature anymore, right? And then you're redirecting its life. So your your hand is is kind of intervening in this cycle. It's still living, right? Mm. It's still alive, but you're redirecting the energy and its life cycles. It's an incredible thing to me. Like how you see yourself. It's like putting your hand in the stream and redirecting the current or something. Right. By just making those cuts and those wires and those things. I mean, I think you can interpret it in a lot of different ways. Right. <laughs> like, I appreciate that perspective, <laughs> but maybe that tree was always meant to be doing what it's doing. You mm. know, like there's mm. when you talk about the unnatural or the natural forces, the unpredictable uh. forces of Mother Nature. Well, man has become a big force <laughs> of Mother Nature. Right. You know, and the oh. hand of man is a. Uh, asymmetrically influencing obstacle for the living world now it's so it's so it's a beautiful thought because when i was first one of my first projects was the mary hill overlook and it was part of the sightings project which was looking at five different landscapes Mm. around the pacific northwest and proposing interventions into those landscapes Right. What kind it, of intervention? Like architectural interventions, right? Built okay. interventions. Okay. And what one, one? It was my first revelation of this. And the office was just starting out. I walked the Tillamook Forest with a forester, mm. and he showed me the old logging railway cut, which was all overgrown with firs and second growth forest. But you could see that cut. He showed me where the dam was made in the stream to blast the logs and scour this little stream, you know, 80 years ago. Yeah. He showed me how the land had been marked by the fires that we don't even see anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, to your point, at that, I mean, and it really made me realize at that time, 
when you build in a landscape like that, you're redirecting forces of of man's intervention that are already there. Yep. There is I mean, there are wilderness areas that no one's has no one has touched. There's no question about that. Right? And do you take away acid rain and climate? <laughs> okay. But you know, physically, let's just say yeah, sure. physically no one has intervened. But it is really, really, really rare. Rare. That there is a landscape that, that we have not physically intervened on in, in, in some way. So you're considering bonsai to be part of that conversation? I, I mean, I think that for, for me, it is a part that conversation and the context that bonsai, because that's too big of a conversation. You know, mm. it's, it's almost too big to fathom. It's a, it's a gigantic, it's, it's like a cloud. Like you're never going to grab a cloud. You don't know what a cloud feels like. You can't, <laughs> you can't hold a cloud. You can't drink a cloud, eat a cloud. Wait, wait, what do you mean it's too big of a conversation? What, what's too big of a conversation? This notion of how man has altered the land, oh, right? I that see. is a theory. This is a theory. Bonsai gives a, a, a connection point. Okay, here's this notion of how we've altered this land over the course of time, right? Right. Well, here's a branch, and you're going to put wire on it, and you're going to bend it, and this tree's no longer going to grow the same way. Do you understand that cerebral concept of how we've altered that land and how this has changed the context of everything? Mm-hmm. Kind of. I understand oh, I logically. I think we do. Mm, I don't. I, huh. I just don't. Huh. I don't. I huh. really disagree. Why? What? Why? Um, be, because I, I mean, think... When, when we plowed the Great Plains and turned them into wheat fields, you don't think we understand the context of that? Environmental. Shift. I would say that there are, are a lot of people that have n- absolutely have never even thought about that, Brad. Well, yeah, that's definitely true. There's a lot of people that have never thought about that, right? Okay. And, right. and so when you say "do we," yes, uh, oh, of course, we. there's going to be a group that does. You know, right. but but does the vast majority of people uh, understand that? Okay, okay, now I understand. So, so I want you, I want you, because you and I have talked about a lot of things, and you've never explained this to me, and I'm sure you've spoken to this. A great amount. I want to know what I really talk like this too much, honestly. Really, no. I want to know what a, what a makes bonsai bonsai American. What in your mind? Well, you talk about going to Europe, and <laughs> you've talked a lot about your master. Dang. I never gave you that audio recording, did I? Or no. did I give you the audio recording? No, my brainstorm so. that day. Oh man, I don't think so. Wow. Maybe you did. I don't know. Yeah. Like like half the things I get that are really good, I wait to listen to them, and I never get to them. So. Uh, yeah. There's <laughs> but, no telling if it was good or not. I don't even know if I sent it to you, but, but I had a moment. Yeah. What makes it American? Well, bonsai is not American. Let's just start there. No. In fact, I will set. I'll I'll set it up with a thought I had riding out here on my motorcycle. Cool. And, yeah, because we've talked about how people see bonsai in in the United States and America. We've talked about this a lot, you mm-hmm. know, or, or sort of touched on it quite a bit. We as Americans. Think about landscape in terms of civil engineering. We dam roads, as as my as my my friend at, at a lumber company here in Portland taught me years ago. We slick off the forest, right? We you know regrade mountaintops, the Denny regrade in Seattle where we sluice a whole hill you know yeah. into Elliott Bay. I mean, Americans in particular, because of the era in which this country has existed and flourished, nature and civil engineering is one thing. So we think of nature at a massive, massive scale. Mm. And, and also at a kind of brutally reforming scale. Yeah. 
and 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 even in our restoration ideas, it's kind of like that. You know, tear down the dams, re- restore the river system. So to think of nature concentrated, all of these ideas concentrated, right? Mm-hmm. Which you you've you convinced me you consider, and I know you do, and I and I'm beginning to see it through your eyes. But to think of all those issues concentrated in one of these yeah. trees. Nature concentrated. Nobody's ever said it that succinctly. That's really interesting. That, I mean, that's, and, and that's, so if, 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 you're, if, back to the question, if there is an American bonsai in mm. the context of civil engineering and the scale of America's vision and the way we think about land, which is massive scale. Yeah. How do they understand, how do we understand your work as American? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I don't, you know, bonsai originated in China as pinging and had very distinct reasons for being practiced. And it's good, isn't it? Yeah, Irish red. I love red. It's a lot colder. It's really good. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) When it gets warm, it's a little nasty. Uh, But I, I, I think, and... And understanding pinging and the origins of bonsai as an art form in the Chinese perspective yeah. and the aesthetics that are associated also helps you understand how the culture creates the aesthetic as a filtration unit. Yeah. Moves to Japan via Buddhism and Taoism, and all of a sudden it becomes bonsai, which is a Japanese term. Right. And the ideals of the Japanese form of the art are very different. And now it moves to the Western world. And if you go to a European exhibition, you can see a, a tree from the UK versus France versus Italy versus Spain. It's very clear, very, very clear. Uh, the aesthetic is different. The gesture is different of the tree. The focal point, the value uh, mm. is very different. And I think it's from that perspective that I've typically kind of looked at bonsai in the United States and tried to understand where are we different. And one of the one of the really unique things that we have is we have the oldest and the largest and the most massive tree in a single state mm. in North America. We have 11 grand champion trees on one peninsula in Washington, we have mm. reference to ancient in a way that concentrated in a singular region of the world is not represented anywhere else in this degree and magnitude. And so mm. from that perspective, to mm. understand that each tree has a, a time frame and a life cycle, just like a human being, you're a baby, you're a toddler, you're, uh, you know, whatever, you're a teenager, <laughs> you're an adult, you're a middle-aged person, you're in, entering your elderly years. The human body changes. Well, the physical mass of a tree changes in response mm-hmm. to the environmental influences. And, and that continuation and progression is what I think bonsai in North America with both our material, the landscape, and the awareness and exposure to those areas has the ability to explore aesthetically. Hmm. Age. Age. Physical age. Now, what makes a bonsai mm-hmm. created in the United States different than a bonsai created everywhere else? I don't, I don't think we know that yet. Mm-hmm. I think that probably Mirai has had a greater, I think Mirai has attempted to, Bonesai Mirai being Mm -hmm. mainly Ryan Neal through Mm -hmm. this facility has attempted to explore that. But there's a lot of people, a lot of really free thinking people that have already started to explore that to a far greater de- degree mm-hmm. than I have mm-hmm. in, in within the bonsai community, within mm-hmm. the exact same medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm not the first, I just get to piggyback off of their efforts and carry on where mm-hmm. they, they've either exited that conversation or they've sort of stopped that exploration. And that's really 
been interesting to understand my part in a generational pursuit of right. trying to make sense of a medium mm-hmm. and how it actually reflects us, us mm-hmm. as in the cumulative American culture notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know that I don't know that I've yet to cross the bridge of how my work in a greater context of environment mm-hmm. and consideration of that. I, I, I have yet to cross that bridge. I haven't even thought about it. Mm. Yeah. Um, Maybe I, I'm thinking too small still. Yeah, I, I don't think you'd ever be accused accused of that. We've also we've also talked about the limits of the public's perception of bonsai, which is very frustrating to me. I don't, I don't understand it, but you live in it, I guess, every day. And it, it and as you were talking, I was thinking that you know bonsai as a Japanese term, as a historical movement, as a school, yeah. you know, with various masters and you went and studied. Sure. Right. That is a, it's like a, it's the overall name of the art form now, which is interesting. Right. Whereas it's, it's no different. I mean, if, if I do a concrete building, I'm not doing a brutalist building. Mm. Right, I'm just doing a concrete building. I'm yeah. using the medium of concrete to explore ideas, you know, in 2020 for whatever institution or place. Right, I'm just doing that. Right, mm-hmm. and and to me, I mean, it's a question. I, I will get to the question for you, but but you know, the work is so gorgeous from a sculptural point of view. It's so profound in its manipulation of nature. Mm. And my sort of sense of this redirection of energy and and concentration, you know, that it's bonsai. It almost seems as a term, it's a limitation, right? It allows people to categorize it. Oh, as oh, those Japanese trees, you know. Well, but I think I, 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 it's interesting to hear you say it that way because I think you've actually identified its limitation, which is to say. If you make a concrete building, it'll be called brutalist. Right. But it'll be called brutalist what? Brutalist architecture. Right. Okay, so brutalism lives under the body of architecture, as does Art Deco, mid-century modern, all all of that stuff, right? Right. Okay, what's the umbrella for bonsai? Because bonsai is equivalent to quote-unquote architecture, but bonsai is actually closer to brutalist Mm -hmm. than it is to the word architecture. Yeah, yeah, the bonsai term is a limitation. It's a limitation because there are other... There are other approaches, much like brutalism and all of its predecessors mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. post that exist under the umbrella of architecture. Well, there's pinging, there's bonsai, and now there's the movements that are happening across the mm-hmm. world that's been exposed to this medium mm-hmm. of miniaturized trees. But there's no umbrella that sums it all up. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting having a conversation with you about, you know, the discussion Wyden Kennedy wanting you to say, hey, how does architecture bring people back? Mm-hmm. Because my <clears throat> brainstorm was hey brad what do we call this thing that's mm-hmm. actually what that's mm-hmm. actually why i'm interested in working with you mm-hmm. and that that is something that i'm mm-hmm. too close to it to understand mm-hmm. that no because to me the uh, and i was just talking about this we were just talking about this mm. um to me the forces you're dealing with of time of cycles, of structure, you know, seasonal cycles, you know, time over history, you know, historic time. Yeah. When you're talking about thousands of years, historical cycles of growth cycles and structure, 
which is what's really apparent what you push in your work to mm-hmm. incredible extremes. Um, I mean, there's so many ideas that you engage and consider and just composition that the, the, that conversation. And I think that's one of the things that has drawn me to you so quickly is I see it in the work and it's the same conversation I've had with really profound artists. Mm. It's those ideas that you're engaged in. You could, you know, you could apply it to video and stone and sure. any yeah. medium. Right. And I, that's why, your your medium is nature. Period. Okay. Period. It's nature, right? And you, and you, it has to be scalable. So you've got some huge pieces out there, but it has to be scaled to something that your body can deal with. Right. I, I mean, that's my. That's. I guess that's where I. Although I haven't formed like a limitation or a stance on where it ends mm-hmm. for me, I guess that's where my interest exists. Right. Mm-hmm is to abstracting the macro into the micro. That's interesting to me. Well, and the macro into the micro. I mean, would you ever be interested in taking like an acre? Say yes. Please say yes. Taking an acre. You you didn't continue what I was supposed to do with it. An an acre of forest. An (laughs) acre of forest. An acre of land. Uh I don't care how big it is. Uh A piece of land. I don't care if it's 100 by 100 feet. Yeah. Taking a piece of land over time as your material, mm-hmm. whether it's understory, trees, three or four species, whatever it is, and messing with it. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're kind of looking at how I've taken my five acres and how I'm right. kind of sculpting it, right? Right. Uh, but I'm, al- I'm also learning a lot about myself just in the design of this little facility that holds these tiny trees. And the trees were the excuse to actually mm-hmm. engage in a much bigger project. I th- so gorgeous. Uh, I, I definitely am interested in that in all of the ways. You know, my background in college, although I studied horticulture, was landscape design because I thought it was interesting that you could use plants as a medium. Right. But I think right. that I recognize there's a divide between landscape design and landscape architecture. Mm-hmm. And I think landscape architecture, if you're a landscape designer and you look at a landscape architect's work, you say, well, that's really nice that they built all of those things, but they sure did a shitty job with the plants. Well, that's and s- when you, sadly, that's the case sometimes. The really good okay, ones. Okay, but hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah, the really but good ones I understand because, <laughs> you know, there's some very inspirational landscape yeah. architects. When you're a landscape architect and you look at designer, you say, isn't that cute how they arrange those flowers? Right, yeah, I know. Right, it's because in, in college there's, there is a divide there in the school yeah. of architecture and the mentality of architecture and the, the, the school and mentality of understanding the systems of the plant right. world. These are, these are so different that it's almost, it's not impossible because there are people that have crossed that threshold. Well, I, I work with some amazing landscape architects mm-hmm. and, and what do they do? They reform land, mm-hmm. they reform water systems, they understand water systems, they understand life cycles yeah. and they project, they project their work in time you know, the 60 years that it takes for the plants to mature, which has always blows my mind. Yeah. It always blows my mind. So by projecting that time cycle of when a tree or plant reaches its maturity and then goes through its life cycle and dies and is replaced, it starts to be not that different than what you're doing. Of course. You're entering into it at midstream, mm. <laughs> right? Right. They're, they're starting it out but projecting out two or 300 years, maybe ideally. And you're entering into it midstream in a, in a plant's life and redirecting it, you know, 
in different ways, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's why it would be fascinating for me. There was this amazing show. I'm so bad at remembering names. Uh, the Shed, when it opened, the art space in New York called The Shed, it opened, they had a, a retrospective of a, of a woman artist's work. And I could come up with the name if it matters for this. But later in her career, she had some pieces where she was reforming landscape into these conical hills mm -hmm. and planting spiraling geometries of trees. So she was conceiving work, you know, in planting and landform at an amazing scale. Mm. It was really incredibly powerful stuff. Interesting. And it, it would be what was powerful about it? Just because at a glance you think it's natural. Funny thing related uh -huh. to your work. At, at a glance you think right. it's natural. Right, right, right. And then you look and you perceive these geometries and a little too idealized landform and the fact that it's a single species and all these other things, you start to go, well, wait a minute what's natural, what's not natural. And then there's just the abstract perceptual stuff, yeah. the pure form stuff of a swirl or a grid or a pyramid or whatever it is, right? Which your work has too. I think, I think when I look at your trees, I think of early modern artists, you know, early 20th century artists doing analytics of the energy forces of the trees, mm. of where the axes are and the intersections. And it's kind of an art student's project at the Bauhaus you know, in the 30s, they would go crazy over these pieces doing analysis of, of the energy and the forces and the geometries in them and the spiral pieces. I mean, my God, it's classic. It's classic modernist, you know, compositional theory in some in some ways. Oh, that's it, really interesting. But, it, but it'd be amazing to see you work, you know, so you're coming in on the 3000th year of some of these pieces, right? Yeah. It'd be fascinating to see what you would do coming in on the 60th year yeah. of, of a grove of firs, you know, and what you could do with the right equipment. I've thought about that a lot. Oh, please. Um, oh, please do it. Yeah, I've thought about it a lot. I, 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 I have, um, you know, like independent from my bonsai practice, just desire to answer some questions that I have. Yeah. And I think... Um, I think working more on the macro is is something that I am curious about. I I'm intrigued. I I like. Hmm. It's interesting to even be able to consider the opportunity to manipulate a much grander scale. I mean, look what James Turrell did with mm -hmm. the Roden Crater, right? Totally. I mean, all of these things. I mean, all it's obvious with all the land artists and uh, again the woman whose name I can't remember. Sadly, I think was similar point in time too yeah. i think i think so but it'd be so so working in the medium from the base of the training of your training in japan working in the medium of these small concentrated pieces of nature and history right mm -hmm. can you tell me what you can say in those pieces and you may never have thought about this, so I'll give you what I can say in those pieces, and how it would be different. What you would than what you might say and pose, working at a different scale. Well, I mean, obvious. I, I guess like the obvious and the initial interest in working in a more macro scale is there's a there's going to be a humility that exists there that maybe isn't 
as present when you're such a dominant mm. force in working mm. with a miniaturized thing, mm. right? Like, so all of a sudden it's like, okay, I want to take the same ability to interact and quote unquote collaborate with nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people would call it control. I, I don't believe mm-hmm. that my approach to these trees is control. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't see it that way at all. In fact, I try to let the tree carry the load. Well, if you move into an environment where the rate of growth is so much uh, greater Mm -hmm. than what you can do to the tree can have, I think, a very rapid repercussion. Mm -hmm. But I think when it's so much greater, what you can do to the tree can very rapidly degrade. Mm -hmm. And And I see some of those limitations, the uncontrollable natural elements that are acting on the forest around me that I can bring these trees into a greenhouse or set them on the ground Mm -hmm. to protect them from. Mm -hmm. I no longer get that, you know? So you start pushing the degrees of asymmetry in the real world. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, that tree's going to get fucked up or it's going to die or it's going to break or... Yeah, but that's part of the... But isn't that, to your point again, that's the nature of the problem. Well, it depends on what you're there to explore, though. I think, like, everybody has an impression of what that would look like personally for me. I would be curious if I could age a tree on the macro scale and have somebody never know that I did it. Uh-huh. This intrigues me. Could uh-huh. I execute this on a 120-foot uh-huh. tall Doug fir and uh-huh. have people look at that and uh-huh. go, how is that tree so much more ancient looking than this 30, 40, 50, 60-year-old yeah. third growth forest that exists beneath it? I'm interested in that. That's, it'd, be, it'd be so amazing. Because it would also then take it out of the genre-based thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you're right. not limited by it existing under an umbrella, which actually is not an umbrella. It's a classification right. inside right. of an umbrella. Bonsai, right? Right. right. And, and, and it's not like... Um, it's not like... The, the, it's not like the... I think one of the hard things about bonsai as a medium for me is, is you are stuck with bonsai and it's a Japanese art form. You are stuck with it small and cute... Mm-hmm. You are stuck with a kitschy attachment to mm-hmm. the art form. And ultimately, mm-hmm. like, I, I think it's really unfortunate that if I went and explored on a on a macro scale, suddenly people would give a shit about what I do mm-hmm. or care. Because because this garden here full of 900 trees is going to be more impressive than, than oh, a majority of the things I'm going to do. There's no question. It's It's just, to me, it's a way to get people to see it as a pure art form, not as... Not an influenced art form. Well, I mean, it's influence. There's no question. I mean, I think, you know, you, when you're talking about that, you know, concrete's been around for, well, the Romans used it in some ways, but it's in a pure way, reinforced concrete since, you know, 1900 or late 1890. So it's mm-hmm. got 150-year history. You can only do so much in concrete. Right. You know, there's there's been a lot of innovation. There's still innovation. There's But it's... Still concrete. Yeah. Steel's the same way. Wood's the same way. I mean, these things all have inherent qualities that in, unless you cover them up, you know, or hide steel inside wood or, you know, do sort of trickery, there's limits to all of those things. But, but you know, and so in one period of time it was called brutalism, but, you know, the Parade brothers were using it in Paris in the, you know, early part of the 20th century and you know, it has a much bigger history and language than any particular classification. Yeah. And so that's why it would be exciting to see you exploring it, you and or the, the others, you know, practitioners 
exploring this redirection concentration. I mean, it's, it's no different than when you take a hike. I think I sent you a photo of a tree I saw in Maine a couple summers ago. But it's no different if you take a hike and you see a tree that's grown in some impossible arc and yeah. then out cantilevering, God knows. And again, a species that you wouldn't think could do it. And there it is in nature because of some force of, you know, perpetual snowfall off, you know, snow falling off a larger tree or whatever it was yeah. that deformed this crazy thing. Yeah, or Native Americans marking a trail with it that all of a sudden, you know, 180 years later is, yeah. is now this freakish shape. And you're like, how did this ever come to be? And you recognize that it was actually mm. the influence of man on nature that created this thing. Like, it's, right. <laughs> yeah, that's I, the conversation. See, and that's why I think the leap and scale... I mean, I don't know how I got on this. I was just inspired, and because because it is true. Back to what I say when I when I came to here when I came here in the first time, I didn't see it. I mean, I'm familiar obviously with the genre of bonsai, and I've always been kind of intrigued by it because it's beautiful. Mm. Not for any other kind of you know any other reason, and then to see how you push structure and form. Mm-hmm really push it mm-hmm. <laughs> to kind of incredible, incredible well, to failure. links. To yeah, failure. To failure. I mean, you know, right. So let's be honest. That's right, my right. boundary is failure. Right. right. But to see how you push it, I mean, it is, it is pure sculpture. It is pure art that way. And yeah, and I, I just think taking the principles, it's no different when artists do small work. When they do small work, they can sell it. Mm-hmm. And you've talked about even your tiny pieces, right? Right. They're saleable. And I've had this conversation with artist friends, you know, who do big installations and can't sell anything. You know, so they're starving even though they're famous. Yeah. So so that's probably not the best economic idea to work at a large scale, right. larger scale. Right. But, but it kind of breaks down the genre in a way that I think would be fascinating for people. It would be a window to the work in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, there was a point in time where you and I were talking about a more larger scale sort of like landscape exploration. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought a lot about what that would look like. Or, or I mean, this is just like you thinking about the future and saying that you mm-hmm. have a, a surface that the, the, the echo of the architectural conversation is giving you mm-hmm. information from, you know, if I just think about sort of what this looks like, it, it goes very, it goes intimidatingly far afield, mm-hmm. uh, but I like it and it inter- it does mm-hmm. interest me because I think at this point, you know, and there's a time where I almost felt like it was dangerous to think about this because it would take me away from sort of this confined umbrella yeah. that I do exist under, but I'm more and more motivated by it. And I think that's clearly referenced in the pieces that no longer exist inside of the ceramic vessel, which honestly, uh-huh. if you talk about bonsai, uh-huh. what makes bonsai bonsai? It's the tree being grown inside of held. that environment. It's held. It's held. And yeah. and when you take that away, what does it become? Uh-huh. Well, now it's not the, all those spruce on the, you know, thousand year old piece of limber pine that was burnt and preserving it. Th- this is not bonsai. Yeah. It's not bonsai anymore. Uh-huh. I don't know what it is. I uh-huh. honestly don't, but, uh-huh. but I know what I want it to communicate uh-huh. to people, you know, yeah. and, and all the redwoods on the the redwood root system that talks about generational uh, concepts as Crazy well as piece. sort of symbiosis inside of the natural community as well as scale and all of those discussions of a disappearing antiquity mm-hmm. and cultural reference that we you think about the west the unbound expansive right. plentiful west right. of the un- north american continent you summarize that up with one tree species and it's redwood right 
It's just, uh, and all of a sudden, it's like, wow, that's freaking powerful, you know? Yeah. Like, we all, all, we identify with a portion of the country culturally by... Uh, well, mytholo- ex- mythologically. Mi- everything. Yeah. Right. Everything. It represented every impression of what this portion of this continent mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. and the people that live there. And it's just mm-hmm. like, whew, that's... That's mm-hmm. really, right. really inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. Even to get to engage with it on a microcosm is super inspiring. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to go live in a redwood for two years so that they don't cut it down. You know, that's, like, right. that's not really my vibe, but like right. I respect that. Right. Uh, I, I, I see bonsai as a vehicle to give people that value without mm-hmm. being that martyr. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's where I continue to be motivated to explore this. But artistically, my artistic motivations are moving more in the direction you're kind of talking. Well, it, it would it would enter into a conversation that I've been intrigued with for a long time too. Whereas we as Americans, again speaking in a in grossly general way, yeah. But we think we think of either massive exploitation of landscape, which usually involves destruction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or pure preservation. Yeah. Don't touch it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just, ma- you know, utilize it to the max, burn it up and destroy it, or don't touch it. And I think what fascinates me, and and people feel that way about building in nature, That, and I think this is what I discovered also in the Science Project, is that nature has been built so many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, by, by us and by, by natural intervention. Yeah that there really is no distinction about whether we form it or nature forms it or how many times we've formed it. Um, and I, th- and I think you taking a much more sophisticated conversation and your tools and and your toolkit, what you know and how you know to manipulate things, mm. it would be a ve- really valuable cultural conversation oh, interesting. As, as well. To, it gives to, me confidence that you, that you, I guess it gives me confidence, our our relationship in general. I mean, I look at you as a mentor and I think it's given me confidence that you find value in what I do uh, for sure. Uh, Because, and I'll never forget (laughs) the first time you came up here, I had, (laughs) I don't know if you and Lisa came into the house or if I, somewhere nature framed the book was sitting. Yeah. And I was yeah, yeah. like, this house, somehow you saw it. You didn't say anything. I said, this house is the reason I bought this book. This is so incredible. The use of architecture to really isolate nature as this visible object of art or appreciable object of art. And you're like, I designed that house. Well, and I was just I like, well, son of a bitch. I don't even remember that. No, we, we use similar language. I, I talk about redirecting the forces of a site. A building comes in. I mean, in, in, yeah, I, I talk about redirecting the forces that exist, whether it's nature or civic forces, urban cultural forces. You're really just redirecting things Yeah, is, is all you're doing. And then I talk a lot about finding the architecture on the site, mm-hmm. looking at the forces that exist yeah, and trying to understand how to intervene in those forces with yeah. the building yeah, and what, you, what meaning what meaning you can amplify and help clarify by that intervention. And that would be, I mean, that's exactly what you do, right? Yeah. Do do you accept that some people are going to interpret the architecture in these spaces because it is such a personalized thing, the environment or this, 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 this space? Do you Uh, accept that some people are going to say, what an asshole? (laughs) 
<laughs> like he came in well, and what was valuable about this, he screwed right. it up. That's right. Only if they know me personally when they say that. No, and I'm not saying this is not a but but like um, I think about oh yeah there, the commentary happens. around whatever to Columbus Circle, yeah, New York Museum of Arts and Design. Sure, there's all yeah, of that, right? Yeah, no, there's a, there's always some of that. There's always some of that. You accept that as a part of your job? Yeah, because you're in a broader cultural conversation. Okay, everyone's gonna have. I mean, that's always a part of it. But I, I've also had. I mean, just to, to to Columbus Circle as a, as a reference point, you know, great outcry. The media whipped it up. The conservative media of the neoclassical architects whipped it up as a kind of rallying cry. And there was a lot of different people assigned. It's, it's like anything else. It was a kind of simple conversation, and people assigned a lot of other conversations to it. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and so it so it went. But I I've had people come up to me the first ten years that it was open. Come up to me in bars and restaurants in New York and say, "Oh, you're Brad Clofill. Yeah, I hated that building when it first came out, and you know, I was so upset, and I protested even against it or whatever else. Oh wow! And now I love it. Huh. So more of those. Mm-hmm. And I think again, if you if you're serving some idea or insight that's ideally not personal, yeah. Right. I mean, the the goal is to almost be almost selfless to to a well. Large and, and the goal, and the, and this will sound uh, corny, maybe even, but the the goal is that your it's definitely your hand and your mind and your point of view. But the goal is to take those forces, find that architectural voice, and place it out there in a way that that it affects the most people. Mm. Right. I mean, that's the goal. Yeah. Is that it's not about you in the end, right? You you are the interpreter. You are the redirection. You're the person doing the redirection of forces. You are the person. But in the end, if it, I think if the voice is right when you set it out there, it's like ringing the bell. You know, once it's out there, it, it resonates beyond itself. Yeah, people will see it. I mean, there'll be a person that just can't get over that you messed with those native natural trees. Yeah. Yeah. So what? I mean, uh-huh. that's just you know sure. that native natural tree has been bioengineered, you know, since its second and third growth so many times that there's no natural left in it. Right. You know, I mean, we know this, right. right? We know this, and the romantic mythologies. I mean, we all have it. We, you know, you walk in to a second growth forest, and now it just makes me pine to see what was there before. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. But, that's a very altruistic way of looking at architecture. Almost mm-hmm. as the filtration part of your filtration mechanism and your architectural design is not considering necessarily how much you want to explore or, or make a statement, but mm-hmm. instead, what is the actual tone and voice of mm-hmm. all things that are influencing and are going to be experiencing right. this over the course of time? That's really interesting. Well, you know, you know this. It's the same thing. You're coming to a conversation. Conversation exists. Yeah. This city, this museum, these people, those donors, artists, right? The conversation yeah. exists, and you're entering into this conversation with your toolkit. Mm-hmm. And your toolkit are also your ideas mm-hmm. and your perceptions. And as we talked about at the beginning, you know, as, as a mature artist or, or, or as a mature creative person, you know what your voice is capable of now, Right. Right, and you push it, and you're engaged in new ideas and interesting things, but it's still your voice. So I think you can be even more incisive and direct mm-hmm. with a mature voice. Yeah, 
right? Because you've also heard all of the all of the complaints, <laughs> yeah, right, and all of the stereotypes, and you you know you know what's out there, yeah. So now it's just a question of what can you offer in that way. Have you been Have you been over the course of your career surprised at? I mean, you're saying you know, as a mature artist now, you know what your voice is capable of. Have you been surprised at the power? Oh my of, god, of your all voice? the time. Like, Every single project. Really? I mean, the ones where we can really explore, the ones, you know, National Music Center, um, National Veterans Memorial, the most recent ones, where we really pushed it mm-hmm. to, you know, to, to our, 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 our ultimate ability mm-hmm. and beyond it, really pushed ourselves beyond even our physical comfort level to actually figure out how to do these things and pull it off and... Certainly, the client's comfort level. Yeah, and, sure. Right, and of course, in the end, everyone's ecstatic. But those those projects, I mean, you're doing this crazy speculation in scale. Back to our conversation, mm-hmm. you know, where you're working to something that can fit on a table, right? Yeah. We never are. We do little models. Yeah. We do miniaturizations, right? We do. Yeah. And digital perspectives and all the other kind of modeling that you can possibly do, but in the end, you have no idea. Yeah. No idea. Because the scale projection is so extreme that it's just highly speculative. Mm. So to walk into those spaces, you're always going to see new things you didn't anticipate. Yeah. And that's the best. <sighs> you know, occasionally there are things that aren't so successful, but mostly it's like you're just kind of blown away about the power of the scale of space. Because we, the I think the one gift of architects is you know how to project thing in scale, you know, if you're good. You know how to project thing in scale, and that's your medium is that projection in scale. And so to go in there to that built project and have it communicate what you hoped it communicated is, mm-hmm. is mind-blowing. Wow. Mind-blowing because, yeah. Like the National Music Center, it's space that no one has ever seen before and no one's ever been in before. This is the Canadian? yeah. And this is in Calgary. Calgary, yeah. that's right. Yeah, I mean, I know. I mean, I've been in a lot of spaces, <laughs> and I've never seen anything like that. Wow. It has nothing to do with me doing it. It's yeah. just you walk in there, and you feel things in your body because of the space that are just mind-blowing. Interesting. Mind-blowing. And then the music and the landscape and the people. Yeah, yeah. 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 God, it's got to be such a, on that scale, to have your vision realized is just something that crazy. It's never, I'm it's, it's unfathomable. It's another conversation that's just unfathomable. Yeah. But just think of, th- think of central park, you know, think of Olmstead designing central park, speaking of scale, right? I mean, landscape architecture is what blows me away. Mm-hmm. The scale of it and, and the time sequence of it, all of that is just mind blowing to me. Mine. I don't understand it. Yeah, I would really, I would really, I've never spoken with a landscape architect whose work I was just like, Mm. that's next level. But that interests me a lot to know. We can make that happen. Where that, I would be, I I would, I would really be interested (laughs) in that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, I think the, when you get right down to sort of the base fundamental connection between all mediums, it, it seems to me, if you try to summarize it all, there is a, uh, just an absolute, a pr- prolific body of work mm-hmm. that has ha- allowed somebody who has a lot of questions mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. to try and work through those questions. Mm-hmm. So you have a prolific mm-hmm. body of work with an absolute superior technique right? to enable the exploration. Because if you don't have the technique, it doesn't matter what questions you want to have answered. The technique or the technical limitation prevents the farthest degree mm-hmm. of exploration, right? So you've, no got, you've got a prolific body of work. You have uh, an impeccable technique. And Skill. you mm-hmm. have the realization and acceptance that it's mm-hmm. going to suck to do that thing <laughs> uh relentless <laughs> desire to work because you mean you mean the the, the day-to-day will suck look i, I mean uh I, <laughs> yes because the day-to-day is, is definitely difficult but you look at like yeah. richard sarah as an yeah. artist yeah. And, and, and this is somebody who when he's Great. not designing massive large-scale installations yeah. that answer a question that he has about the way space impacts you yeah. he's making prints where yeah. he's exploring uh, the exact same thing on right. a very small scale. Different that, medium. Mm-hmm. But it has just as much of an impact when you look at that right. in the correct context of display. It's every bit as powerful as one of his core 10 structures, yep. just looking at the way he handled positive and negative mm-hmm. space. No, it's it's great you brought him up. That's interesting. Yeah, you same thing. He has had such a profound impact on my career. And one of the ways, I mean... First thing I went, first time I went into, I guess it was the Tilted Arcs at the Dia in Manhattan. I walked into those pieces. Yeah, or torqued. Were they Tilted Arc, torqued ellipse? I can't remember which I, ones. I've never seen one of his pieces. Oh my in, God. I've seen his prints in person. Okay, well, so I walked into those, the first installation at Dia, however many pieces they were across the street from the main Dia. And I walked into those spaces and I, I nearly cried. If I, I can't even remember, maybe I did, because I was in new space that I'd never been in. And it was at the later part of his career. Mm. And it just, it, I was so awestruck, not only by the pieces and the power of the pieces and how unexpected they were, um, but that someone worked so hard with that kind of discipline. Yeah. And really in one material mm. for a huge amount of time, right? And then can make those kind of dis- discoveries with just the rigor of investigation that yeah. he was in. It was so inspiring as a career for me. And then he went through those periods of really dark criticism, a lot of his civic pieces, the got instant taken installations out. that were yeah. that eventually were removed. Yeah, I mean, this is the this right. is the whole conversation, though, right. right? And like, I think about the I think about the exhibition of your work that was at the Portland Art Museum. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, we're okay, here is this world-renowned architect and you go to see your the exhibition of... And, and I still wonder, like, an exhibition of your process, an exhibition of your mentality, an exit... Mm-hmm. Like, I still wonder this about that, but mm-hmm. you have all of these materials and shapes and mm-hmm. explorations of context that your mm-hmm. architecture was really built off of and based mm-hmm. off of. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, oh, interesting. That would not be what I, that was not what I was prepared to see when mm-hmm. I went to that exhibition. I was just like, what is this? And it really made me think a lot about all of the influences that do funnel through somebody oh, as a filtration yeah. system. No question. Yeah, no question. Everything. You take everything you can possibly get and every material you can possibly explore. I mean, that's the nice thing about architecture. We can explore so many different materials. It's really fun. 
It's overwhelming. It's too overwhelming for me. Like, I, I like tiny trees. At least it's, it's fathomable for me, right? The time frame is not, but at least like the scale is. It's, it, it gives me anxiety when I talk right. with you about architecture. I'm just right. like, geez. Right. I think, I think that quote, I like tiny trees. We got to edit that one out. I think we really got to edit that one out. This is not helping you. This is just not helping the quest that right. we're after here. Right. Well, you know. Uh, but no, I, I mean, I... This dealing with the scale of nature you deal with, it's a very intimate and direct physical relationship. Yeah. It's on the scale of your body. Yeah. It's you and the peace. Well, not right? only that, but whether you choose to abide by or believe it or not, I do think there's an energy exchange amongst living things. Mm-hmm. And, and this is on a scale where... I get very real-time feedback, and the tree gets very real-time feedback, and consequently, we have now exchanged... I mean, it's not like having sex, but it's very intimate and close, and we have Mm -hmm. exchanged not fluids, but something. You know what I'm saying? Like, something has happened there once I've put my hands on a tree, Mm -hmm. and I know the sensation when I've hit it, and I know Mm -hmm. the sensation when I don't connect, you know, like... you. It's it's the same it's the same thing in my work and I'm sure other creative people's works. When once once you're, well, actually, you 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 do a drawing that you think has the potential in it to become form because it's mm-hmm. only two dimensional. Mm-hmm. Then you do those first model studies, and one of them hits and becomes spatial. Mm-hmm. Then it starts to get bigger than you. Is, are, the, is there at any point are you like oh shit oh shit oh shit yeah do you feel like that oh my god and then and then you're and then there'll be a point eventually as you're working along where you're really serving the thing itself it's no longer yours yeah oh, that's interesting it has its own voice and you're just trying not to fuck it up yeah you know you're just trying to serve the thing that exists i mean you've set it in motion yeah and then at one point it it gains its own voice in life and you're just trying to hang on to it and follow it and and that's when it's incredibly magical, really magical, because it's a whole different mindset. It's like, how can we not mess this up now? Mm. There, we see the potential of it. Yeah, we know what it is. It's speaking to us. Yeah, right. And how can we just make it better and not mess it up? And you kind of want to get out of the way. But you obviously, you obviously do enough to mess it up and be like, oh, that's where I messed it up. Oh, no question. Okay, cool. No. So you test, you still explore those oh, boundaries yeah, at yeah. that point. No, You're- God, oh my God, there's so many. Yeah, I mean, you're always looking at two or three three different ways of developing things. Mm-hmm. Even down to a detail, you're looking at two or three different ways. And some of them hit and some of them miss. Wow. I but mean, that, all, that, but that uh, telescopic, that telescopic yeah, aspect, uh, going down to a doorknob or the way a so door, fun. you know, in, whatever, all of the details around yeah, and then just this matters. macro space. It and, ma- and, and it all matters. <sighs> It, it all matters. I, I remember I was working for a, an architect in Switzerland at the beginning of my career who who was did some beautiful, powerful pieces of architecture. One school that kind of was an aqueduct in the valley in, in northern northern Switzerland. But I realized you got closer and closer, closer to it, and you didn't get any more information. Oh, wow. It, it, it was almost like you were untethered. Uh-huh. Like, where did the building go? Because you saw this thing in the valley that was so profoundly beautiful and powerful. And you get to the mid-range, and it kind of still communicated interesting things. And then you got close up, and there was nothing. Mm. Walls. You know, it, it didn't 
it didn't transcend the details or it didn't transform into other scales and, and material communication. Like I, I wrote something at the time, this is really early in my career, where I, I got to the building and I didn't know where to put my hand. <laughs> right? Yeah. And you want that relationship to go all the way there, you yeah. know, from the landscape scale to me and my hand or my eye, you know, yeah. where does it go? Yeah, but very, very our architecture doesn't do that a lot, and now more now as things be, has be have become so easy to digitally project imagery, this that that issue of where's the hand is almost non-existent. Wow, almost non-existent. Wow, it's, it gets into question of craft and making and all kinds of different things but isn't that as i mean isn't that a filtration isn't that a separation that's that's a stratification of levels to the game i would think oh it is but there and there's such dis different disciplines a lot of architects have trouble making scale change you know they can work at the large scale because that is the kind of primary realm of architecture but getting down to a scale where you know that door detail or that doorknob mm -hmm. relates to the big idea is extremely hard extremely hard do it's you, kind of why architects are so bad at furniture. Oh, interesting. Mostly. I thought a lot of the great furniture makers were architects. No, there's a few. In fact, I didn't you'd have trouble. There's a few. I there, mean, the uh, whole mid-century modern era, depending on if you think that's yeah, good yeah, furniture yeah. or not, no, right, there, would, be, uh, would be entirely yeah, architecturally but, based. But a lot of those really good furniture makers aren't that great of architects either. <laughs> okay, well, right? so that's fine. Right? No, no, that, that's, that's it's fine. interesting. And it, it is because... It is because of the scale of their eye. Like, wh where, what is the scale that you can see? And it kind of relates to our conversation. Sure. Are you going to be good at the scale of, you know, half an acre? Sure. Because it's a different conversation. For sure. Right? Yep. You're good at this scale. You're good at the furniture scale. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you pack everything in the world into the furniture scale. Sure. It's, but it's interesting because it, that's a hard... I mean, that's what, when I designed plates... You know, for for Eleven Madison Park and Claridge's, I designed those plates, and for me, it was so fascinating to work at a tabletop scale. Yeah, and every little texture and touch and shadow, you know, and in the end, this, that the that the tableware is in service of the food mm -hmm. of this beautiful artwork. God, it was so fun. I, such I, a such a different range of expertise when. And the gold leaf on the ceiling and the bar, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. the the level of craft and detail that went into that space. So fun. That's really that's fascinating. That's it. Uh, and maybe that is where I had skepticism all around landscape architecture in terms of my experiences because when you were there in person, although you could look at a beautiful water, watercolor rendition of the uh -huh. hypothetical spaces yeah. of. Oh. hardscape and planting and it's like oh that looks beautiful and then you get there and it's just like well this is the most vapid experience i'm oh. not even considered as an individual in the scale of this thing that you've oh, created but the good ones do the oh. good ones do well so that's where and i mean i i think i i think i it's have seen that but it has never been quantified or broken down on that level and it makes so much sense now when you see a really intimate space created inside of a grander scale where there is organization for the larger population to move through. And yet there's a space for the individual. Yeah. You know, no. there's something to be explored, discovered. There's mm -hmm. an intimacy that's created inside of that. Mm -hmm. You have a moment. Well, and the, I, th you know, I think of the work of Michael Van Valkenburg, of Doug Reed at Reed Hildebrand. I mean, there's lots of, of different 
different landscape architects that do that. I think of Anne Hamilton, the artist who does things at a very large scale, sure. spatial scale, but somehow it becomes this visceral, intimate experience that touches you individually. I mean, th- that's the goal. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's the goal, I think, of, of all of our work is to have that larger impact, but also make a place where the individual really feels really feels touched. But I think it's extremely difficult. It's just, extremely. It's just the levels to the game. I mean, I th- yeah. that that, that the, which is why you have to why you have to work big. Yeah, I'm, I we've, mean, we've, if, de- if, we've decided that. If I I I will I will definitely uh, I'm encouraged by that. Yeah. It's not. It's something that I have been thinking about a lot more lately. Yeah. Um. But I'm also I also find it really interesting to to recognize that there are levels to every artistic medium. Yeah, that motivates me. In fact, because I I come from an athletic background and competition is just born into me. Yeah. So then you think about okay, what a, what am I going to do with bonsai when the competitive mind comes out for me? It's mm-hmm. try and try and push myself to the maximum degree mm-hmm. of the prolific body of work, mm-hmm. the execution of technique at the mm-hmm. highest level, mm-hmm. and the dedication and hard work that nobody else would put in. I want to mm-hmm. know where that takes me mm-hmm. in bonsai. And I really think that's what created my master, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Kimura. Uh, you know, he would just, his technique was impeccable. His limitations, the ceiling was far exceeding anybody else's mm-hmm. concept for bonsai. And he was just willing to work harder. Yeah. So so he had prolific technique mm-hmm and work work ethic that mm-hmm. nobody had seen in bonsai and it and it created a, a revolution mm-hmm. a, a complete modernization of a really outdated art form right well I, that's why i think it's ready i think the next leap it's time for the next leap in that way because you have the technique right continuing to try and build it yeah for well, sure you, uh, you, i wouldn't say i have i've learned with bonsai you don't have anything okay right until the tree right, says but, you have it <laughs> right but so even that knowledge sure is, is you've you've learned you've brought yourself to a place where you have tremendous amount of skills and and a, a body of insights right and now to apply them to a, the problem of scale and time associated with that right I mean, to find a patron who, I mean, I don't think it would be hard to find a patron with land. Mm. There's a lot of our patrons that have a lot of land. And you get to walk. I mean, no different than Andy Goldsworthy gets to walk yeah, the sure. land and find his art, mm-hmm. whether it's bracken ferns or a stone wall or ice, right? You could walk the land and find a piece yeah. that you want to work with. Huh? A lot of things come to mind. Let's do <laughs> hey, it. I, it makes me. I'm just. I would just love to see it. To me, <laughs> I'm just. I'm just greedy. I'm in. I just want to see it. It's. It's absolute self-interest, frankly, because <laughs> I want to see your voice, and and your technique and and your insights of, applied to that. I I think, it would blow our minds. I think we'd get to see a lot. Yeah, you have more confidence in that in my in my capacity than I have in myself, no, honestly. But but no, I'm at a point where I would feel confident enough to attempt something like that. Yeah, I, I I would feel confident enough to attempt something like that. I don't know what would come of it, but I'm sure curious to find no, out. That's what I'm saying. If you got to pick the piece, 
right? I would love to walk with you. Mm-hmm. I'd love to be on the walk with you. If you got to pick the piece and you just spent time with it, right? Well, that's what it takes, though, right? Right. You spend some time with it over a few seasons. and How much time do you spend on a site before you design a building? As much as I can. Oftentimes, is that not very much? No. I mean, t- t- well, you... You you go to the site in the beginning. You go to another quickly thereafter another site visit. Um, I mean, most of them involve flying, right? That's the problem. Um, and then you start working, and then you go back and look to see if what you're seeing is the right thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I would say four or five trips over the course of the design concepting, right, to see if it's making sense. Yeah. But I go, it's so, it's so interesting. When I go to sites the first time when I know I'm, I've been charged with finding the architecture for that place, it's almost like every pore, every follicle of hair is heightened. It's, it's like I'm just, it's amazing. It's the most amazing feeling to me because I'm just so trying to feel it and see it. Do you find that trying to feel it and see it impedes that, or do you, are you no. just you've learned how to get into that no, space? No, it's 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 like being a piece of photo paper or something, or or a sponge, or a, you know, I don't know, various various metaphors where I'm just trying to let it tell me things. <laughs> you let it in, so your eyes, your ears, really, your I mean, it's like everything. I, it's transcendent to me. It's one of the most amazing things I love. But but is that kind of listening? But you're at a level now as an architect where do people expect a show? Do people watch you? Do they oh. want to witness the creativity oh of Brad Clopeville? Yeah, yeah, of course. I like, mean, there's I want many... to be there to see this shit. What's he going to do? Yeah, like, what is that? That's got to be so weird. Yeah, luckily, I don't. There are many architects who have exploited that uh-huh. by, by doing watercolors during lectures. And oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, People do want the artist. They they want to experience the creative process. There's, they want to share in it. You've got is, to you've got to deliver. You're so well, I, I, I perform mean, demonstrations. Yeah, no, you they, are performing at that point in time. Well, they want to share in it. Understand? There's there, in many right. ways to view that perspective. You right. are a performer at times as an architect. No question. Okay. No Fair question. Enough. I mean, they're spending a lot of money. You like that? It's just a fact. They're spending a lot of do money. You like it? Yeah. Okay, sure. Cool. Well, I mean, I had to learn. I'm not that public by nature, so I had to learn to do it, you know, so, and, and some people want it more than others, and some people want you to be more present. I mean, I've worked with a lot of art collectors who really want relationships with the artists. They want personal relationships with the artists. I've been to dinners, you know, where the artists are there that they collect. And, yeah. I mean, you know, they're spending a lot of money on art or architecture, and they kind of want it all, you Yeah. Know? And again, I think the way we think, thus this conversation, you and, to you and I, it's quite natural. I mean, that's part of our instant friendship, I think, in affinity, right? Yeah. And the majority of people don't get to think like this. Mm-hmm. They don't. They aren't asked to think like this. They don't have the facility, maybe you know. But it resonates with them mm-hmm. when they hear it. it. And it gets back to some of the things we talked about at the very beginning. They may not be. They may not understand the history of bonsai. They may not understand the nature of that species and the history of that species, but they can see the beauty in it. Yeah, they can see it. 
you know, and, and if they're the kind of person that only sees kitschy bonsai Japanese whatever, or you know, whatever the stylistic quality of it from the sixties and seventies and fifties, that's their problem. But I think fundamentally human beings respond to beauty mm-hmm. in a powerful way, and you have nature on top of it. So you have nature and just the beautiful way that you compose in your eye. And I think that's the same way with people. They, you know, they may be accountants, they may be stockbrokers, they may be bankers, but people, when they see beauty, it resonates. Hmm. And we all have a different entry portal into beauty, but I think there's a commonality. Yeah. In there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The door. Right. There's a door. I mean, a lot of people collect art not for beauty. You know, they collect them for a lot of different reasons, but. Yeah, investment stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah. E- and even the, you know the, the novelty of the idea, the novelty of new form. There's a lot of novelty in the world, right? But um, which is fine. But but I I think the profound beauty of what you do is so unquestionable. Appreciate you, you that. Walk, you walk out into the garden here, and it's just moving. Appreciate that. It's awe aw- inspiring. So you're basically going to come up with a new name for what it is is going on here, and I'm going to design <laughs> a giant scale landscape, and, yeah. and we'll call it good. We'll keep moving yeah, forward. Exactly. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, obviously, this is the first time we've ever recorded a conversation. And I, yeah. I mean, we haven't done this enough, but we've had conversations yeah. that yeah, led yeah. us to want to do this. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I hope this certainly isn't the last one. Yeah, no, me too. It's so exciting. Yeah. You're a very popular guy. Huh? You're a very popular guy. I'm not that popular. <laughs> you you have a very I would say you have a very uh I would say you have a very artistic existence. Uh, well, I I've, I've lived for ideas. Hmm. Um to the benefit of the work and maybe to the detriment of, of uh, my economic <laughs> my economic <laughs> existence. But I've definitely, I've, I love the medium of architecture. I love the voice of architecture, the power of architecture and what it's capable of. Do you love it more now than ever? Oh, yeah. I believe in it so much. Huh. You know, but finding the, the context, I mean, and I've been extremely fortunate. So, but finding the context where you can really explore that voice of architecture is really hard. Did you? Because so much of our culture treats architecture like commodity. Ah. Right. That it's hard. It's hard to find opportunities. Did you come up with a solution for how to bring people back to Wyden Kennedy architecturally? Um, we started the conversation and then it was put on hold. Okay. But we, I think we, I think we know how. Okay. We got far enough in the conversation that we had some, had some ideas that I think, I think would, would, would resonate and begin. Begin a broader conversation of things. Nice. But, yeah. Nice. Because I, th- I think it came around. Now we're going to get caught in a whole conversation again, but just to answer that one question before uh, we stop, it came around to choice, right? So people worked in offices. Well, first they worked in terrible offices, mm. and they're just horrible places to be. Yeah. And then they worked in more interesting offices, like Wyden and Kennedy, first generation, right? Doesn't feel like an office. Feels like a workshop, feels like a studio, feels like other di- types of typologies, right? And so their ideas were not so strictly channeled, but they were still working in an office, right? Yeah. So in letting people go out the door and work, what you were really offering them was choice. I could work at home in my slippers. I can work in the cafe. You know, I could work in the park bench and I could come back to the office, mm-hmm. right? 
So then the question is, yes, that will never go away. Those options will still exist. So if you come back together with your community, still something that I believe everybody wants. Yeah. Absolutely everybody wants. Then when you come back to the community, will you just have to sit at your desk again or will you have choice? Mm-hmm. Right? And what choices can you have in that workspace without it being ridiculous? Yeah. Without it being the little pods, the stereotypical pods that you see in stereotypical high-tech spaces? Yeah. You know, but it it sort of represents this idea, are there different ways of working? When we did Uniqlo's new headquarters in Tokyo, that was so fascinating. You had a work culture that was formed... We did a lot of research, a lot of looking and, and visiting. And you had a work culture that was formed in post-war. We, we brought Western workspace in, in post-war, yep. uh, post-World War II, to Japan, and it basically hadn't evolved. They were working in basically 1957 workspace. Mm-hmm. Eight-foot ceilings, two-before grids, fluorescent lights. And because it's Tokyo, their personal space was about two and a half feet. They were just packed in. And no light, you know, miles from the farthest, you know. And it was open plan, but just probably the worst work environment I could ever imagine for creativity. Yeah. I mean, kill creativity dead when you walk in the, yeah, when you right. get off the elevator, right, it just right. dies right there on the floor. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we created new workspace for them in this warehouse, big warehouse with high ceilings and huge windows. And in that workspace, we created a city. We called it, yeah, I think I, I forget. Uniqlo City. But anyway, it was it was about in this workspace having streets and alleys and town squares and cafes and libraries and just choice. And so these this company went from a very conservative, tremendously outdated workspace context, but was very tied to Japanese culture, mm-hmm. where they were basically afraid to leave their table because then they wouldn't be working. Right. Right. And I was terrified the day they moved in that they wouldn't do it. Yeah. That they wouldn't sit in cafe tables along the corridor and talk to a coworker as people walked by. And and they instantly took to it. And it just gave me such great confidence in human nature. Mm. And that human nature transcends cultural context. Yeah. Right? You give them choice. Mm. And then suddenly they feel so respected and so honored. You know, that you do this. And it was it was an amazing experience. Interesting. I was terrified. That would be terrifying. Yeah. That would be terrifying. But it, yeah. it was this project with, with Mr. Yanai to kind of reinvent his company as a more international company, not just a Japanese company. Yeah. They've yeah. done it. They did it. No, they did, they, they, they did, yeah, yeah. they did it as well as it could In potentially be done. No, mm-hmm. I mean, he's a genius. He's really a, interesting a, to see Uniglo's reinvigoration. Yeah, it was a re, it was a reinvention of yeah. a, a, of a, a culture and a company. It was very no. interesting. And 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 my friend John Jay had a tremendous. Who's from here? Formerly yeah, Wayne Kennedy. Yeah. yeah, here in Portland had a tremendous amount to do with that. He's yeah. the one that brought us into the conversation, where he told us when he brought us in that he had never been so so frightened in his life. Uh, he just wasn't sure if he could pull it off. And you, it was an amazing challenge. Do you know who Mr. Kurosaki is? Mm-hmm. He's a friend of John, uh, mm. and I, I can't remember if it's in Shibuya Shinjuku or Akihabara, but you you kind of are walking amongst all of these skyscrapers in in, in not a financial district, but it's one of the 
hubs of Tokyo. And all of a sudden, Mr. Kurosaki created this little area where you have like a, a boutique tobacco shop and you've oh, got Oh yeah, that guy. Hint, oh hint. my god, it's yeah. so cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. What's the what's the name of it? I forget. I'm I trying, went there I'm so much. It I'm was trying to think. so brilliant. It was really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, really wonderful. So he brought his yeah, whole yeah. creative team here. Hmm. Uh, to Mirai. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. cool. Which was really neat and interesting to discuss. No, they were, they're a genius. Yeah. And Kur- to, and Mr. Pull, Kurosaki yeah, seems very... Yeah, to pull it off. I did meet him. I actually met him. Yeah. The, the gentleman that owns that. Yeah, John set up a meeting with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's brilliant. Seem, seems to be an incredible creative mind. Yeah. yeah. Incredible creative mind. Yeah. And to do it in that context... Uh, you know, of, of such a rigid... It's cultural. almost like in defiance of, you know? Oh, like, yeah, it's like At the base of these... Very rigid skyscraper accepted yeah. buildings is like this totally counterculture way of existing. Right. No, it's yeah, he's he's brilliant, yeah. absolutely brilliant. I forgot about that. That's where I spent all my time. Actually, was in those things. Yeah, because yeah. they're just amazing. Yeah, I worked in the in, in his spaces there a little bit before I had to come back from Japan huh. when I, when I was doing my, with the World Bonsai Convention in 2017. So it couldn't have been more contrasting. I to was be- there. Wasn't I there? 2017. Isn't that when I was working in Uniqlo? I think so. Pro- yeah, yeah. Well, possibly. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Had I only known. Had you only known the largest bonsai event the world had ever seen was going on. Wow. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. Dang. Missed it. Should have called me. I, you know. <laughs> Brad, get to Tokyo now. Bonsai. Crazy. <laughs> Well, this is this has been fantastic. It has, yeah, it really has. I'm glad I'm glad that we were able to do it, and I yeah. appreciate you making the time because I, I, I know you are a busy guy. Oh, so fun! I mean, again, in the, in this pandemic context, just to sit in a room with someone, first of all, in a room together, we shook hands today. We did probably not the <laughs> smartest thing we ever did. <laughs> But at some point, you have to be human. We just can't help ourselves. It is. Well, yeah. We walked up to each other, and we were kind of looking at each other, and then you extended your hand, and I was like, okay, just, all right, we're doing this. Yeah, it's just, you know, let's not be completely stupid, but it's time to be human again. Yeah, yeah I yeah. agree. Yeah, I agree. I appreciated that very much. In yeah. fact, that's the first handshake I've had in a long time, and that is a big part of yeah. Of my dad raised me uh, shaking my hand first and then giving me a hug. Yeah. Oh, really? That's yeah. so interesting. So, so for me, it's a big, ah. it's a bit, that's a big like communication tool. Fantastic. Yeah. But I do appreciate it. And, uh, and I look forward to doing it again. And yeah. I hope that, um, you're able to go far afield again mentally and find some of those creative opportunities. Yeah. Cause, cause I can I see that you're starved for it. And I respect yeah. that. Boy, I have to, I have to find it. That's, that's what the South Fork of the John Day is going to give me this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy. Or, or maybe the Steens. It could be the Steens, too. I don't know. Cool. We'll see where I go. Well, enjoy yourself out there. All right. Until next time. Yeah, thanks. Cool.